Cast your mind back to Scotland in 1996. Scientist created Dolly the Clone Sheep. Braveheart won Best Picture at the Oscars. And it was also the year that Mark Urquhart joined Bailey Gifford as a graduate trainee. At the time, our largest investments included Lender, Lloyd's TSB, and the oil and gas multinational British Petroleum. Today's top holdings are the computer chip equipment maker ASML and the e-commerce giant Mercado Libre. So, at first glance, these companies do appear pretty different. However, at the time of investment, they reflected a common characteristic, growth. Well-run businesses chasing big opportunities. Welcome to Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking. I'm Malcolm Borthwick, Managing Editor at Bailey Gifford. And over the next 30 minutes or so, Mark, now an investment manager and partner, and I will discuss Bailey Gifford's approach to growth investing. But first, a quick reminder. As with all investments, your capital is at risk and your income is not guaranteed. Mark, welcome to Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So let's just start with how you joined Bailey Gifford. You graduated from Oxford with a first, won a Kennedy Scholarship, had a PhD all before the age of 25. So a lot of opportunities ahead of you. How did Bailey Gifford come about? Really by chance. I thought I was going to be an academic, hence the perpetual student approach. During my PhD, which was on Scottish nationalism and Italian regionalism, I got a bit disaffected with how narrow it was, really. And it was very interesting. I enjoyed it immensely. But as an academic, you specialize and specialize. And I also discovered I didn't particularly like teaching undergraduates because they're quite lazy. So I thought I need to do something different. I took myself off to the career service at Edinburgh University. Uh, back in the days, this was pre-Google, which was invented in a garage in 1997, the following year went through the various ring binder folders and Bailey Gifford popped up, started with B, so near the start of the alphabet. And I thought, hmm, that looks intriguing. I knew nothing about investment. Wasn't one of these who'd read the FT since the age of four, but thought, well, this might use a bit of the politics, but of the economics, give it a whirl. So put my application in and was interviewed by the then senior partner, Gavin Gemmell, and the head of the UK, Max Ward, and was offered the job. And that's how it started. You mentioned ring binding folders there. These were different times. How different was Bailey Gifford in 1996 to now? We were obviously in a different office. I think there's about 160 staff when I joined. So we're about tenfold bigger now. We had 12 billion or so sterling in assets under management, dominated by both UK clients and I think around 50% of our assets were invested in the UK stock market. That would now be eight or 10%, I think. So very different. We expanded into the US. We had some US pension fund clients, but geographically now our reach over the last 25 years has gone into numerous different countries. But the biggest difference would be we were organized regionally. So I started in the US team, went to the UK team, went to the Japanese team in the well-tested rotation, but there were no global teams. There was no, no sort of international teams. So that was a big change just around the turn of the millennium. And in terms of the style of investing, I mentioned a couple of companies in the introduction, British Petroleum, now BP, Lloyd's TSB, now Lloyd's Bank. How has our attitude to investing in growth companies evolved over the years? It's moved a long way. Partly that's internal, partly it's external. I think 
the external factors are the advent of the internet, connectivity, the whole idea we've all got supercomputers in our pocket changed everything, really, you know, in the sense that everything was disruptable. If you think back to 1996, it was those companies, we loved yellow pages, you know, directory businesses, which for younger listeners will mean absolutely nothing, but those tombstone books used to search for a plumber or a, an electrician. And when Google did come along, they sort of disappeared overnight almost. What was a fantastic business, Steady Eddie, just gone. So there was something about that change of form factor through the late 1990s. It created the stock market bubble. It got ahead of itself. But there's always truth in a bubble, I think. And you know, some of the companies which emerged over the 2000s and the 2010s have these extraordinary network effects, have this ability to grow exponentially and into very large markets. So to me, that's the most exciting thing, that disruption of traditional economics, my sort of first topic of study, and the market's difficulty in pricing that, I think, and in really understanding that it's the disruptor rather than the incumbent that that holds the ace cards here. And were these companies back in the mid-90s, the likes of Lloyds, BP and, and, and Vodafone and others, would you describe them as growth companies, growth opportunities? Absolutely. But I think a good growth company then would be 10 to 15%, you know, something that could compound the sort of steady eddies, stalwart growth, however you want to describe it. I think the opportunity set now is, and notwithstanding events of the last, you know, sort of two or three years where, where some companies have been challenged in terms of their growth, we can quite often find companies that can sustainably grow 25, 30, even 35%. So that's a quantum of difference. And obviously anyone who understands the arithmetic of exponential growth, the difference that makes to the end point is really quite significant. You know, a, a company growing at 15% for five years is attractive, it, it will double, but a company growing at 35% for five years will go up fivefold. So it's that sort of difference in the opportunity set, which I think is hugely exciting and something we seek to systemically exploit. And one of the very early companies that you looked at was Microsoft. Yes, that's right. So I was the young thing on the US team and had used a very rudimentary computer for my PhD. So back then we didn't have desktop computers. I think we had one terminal which had internet access at the end of the desk, but people treated with suspicion. Broker research came through on fax machines. So it was the job of the young trainee to get the faxes every morning. And I was seen as the chap that might understand this newfangled technology software, which was a relatively new term. It was probably the easiest investment report I've ever written in the sense that, you know, here was a company that had 90% plus market share, was growing really effortlessly because every computer sold had Microsoft installed and had that software there. It had huge operating margins and was led by a visionary in the form of Bill Gates. So I sort of quickly concluded we should buy it. And I think much to my surprise and some of the other people on the on the team surprise, Mick Brewis, who was the partner in charge of the US team, and to his credit, bought the shares. So I was suddenly, that, that's quite a different thing when you've recommended something and then the trigger is pulled and, and you own the shares. But fortunately, they did very well. And I think that was quite a informative moment for me quite early on that you could get these companies which could grow very quickly, but then could double again and could double again. And that's been a mindset I've always tried to keep throughout my career. 
And what do you look for ultimately in a company? I guess it's a really interesting balance you're referring to there in terms of the kind of blue skies thinking, but also the fundamentals in terms of looking at things like cash flow and pricing power. How do you get that balance? You're exactly right. It's trying to find companies which have that opportunity set, but in itself, that's never enough because economic theory would suggest it should be competed away. So if you take a company like Hermes, which has been one of my favourites, which amuses my colleagues that a 50-something Aberdonian likes handbags <laughs> so much, in theory, they shouldn't be able to sell handbags at the price they sell them at. It's bonkers. Even if they do, which they do, they sell the Birkin and the Kelly and these iconic handbags, others should be able to compete with them. There's no barrier to entry in procuring leather and making nice fastenings, etc. But they can't. And that's because that bag has a an iconic brand. It's globally known. It's associated with that sort of era of Hollywood glamour. You can't replicate that. And the company itself has been around since the 1840s. So a new entrant just doesn't have the heritage. So that leads to the second part of your question. That leads to tremendous margins, tremendous cash flows, being able to finance its own growth. So I would love to find 35 or 40 Hermeses. They don't exist or I'm still looking for them. But you're looking for companies that have that opportunity set, but also have those really strong and lasting barriers to entry. Because what I'm ultimately looking for is longevity of growth. I want companies that that aren't just growing for the next 12 or 18 months, but can grow for the next decade and more and to allow the share price to compound along with the sales and earnings. Um, So I get very excited when you find companies with those barriers to entry, which then translate into the strong financials. And you started at Bailey Gifford in the US and UK teams. Uh, Then you joined the Japan team, I think it was in 1999. Maybe you were a little bit sceptical about joining the Japan team, but that quite informed your thinking, I get the impression. I was more than sceptical. I was hugely disappointed. (laughs) So I sort of thought, crikey, what have I done wrong? I've been sent to Japan. The context back then was Japan was in a long bear market, you know, sort of post-its. I think it was 1990, the Nikkei peaked, and that was famously when the Imperial Palace, the real estate there, was worth more than the whole of California, was the statistic often bandied around. I was entirely wrong. I had four of the best years of my career. I got to work with some great investors, George Veach, who was the partner in charge of the team, and more closely with Sarah Whitley, who until recently ran Japan Trust and at the time was running Shin Nippon. I was working on small cap Japan. It taught me to be open-minded. I'd got in with the impression, oh, these Japanese companies are so staid and boring, the Sonys and Toshibas of the world, and they won't change. But actually below that, the underbelly, there were all these new companies. Shin Nippon literally means New Japan. And you met these madcap entrepreneurs. Uh, I remember meeting the guy that runs a company called Don Quixote. And his idea was that shopping should be chaotic, should be madness. And it was that whole thing of, through Western eyes, that makes no sense. We want Marks and Spencers and regimented underpants. But actually, shopping as entertainment was brilliant. And the Japanese loved it and lapped it up. And it was a huge success competing against boring department stores. And the second thing was the ability of entrepreneurs, and I think this is something that stayed with me, to really drive through and deliver. So in the portfolio that I now run, we're looking for these special individuals, not always sort of neat bow ties and very organized individuals, sometimes mavericks, madcaps, people that will take risks, will do things differently, will see the world differently. You know, So from the sort of Japanese startups to the the Elon Musks of the world. I think there's, for me, there's quite a connection. And 
we're very privileged to the job we do getting to meet so many interesting people, but it's the mavericks who I really sort of take to. And it's often said, and I've heard your colleague Tom Slater say this a few times, in terms of usual people don't do unusual things. It is the mavericks that are probably key to disruption and bringing about change. I'd 100% agree. Yeah, if you take that example of electric vehicles, 10 years ago when we were first investing in Tesla, it seemed bonkers. You know, first of all, the cars didn't go very far, the batteries weren't very good. People remember the electric vehicles of the 90s and noughties and sort of glorified golf carts, really. You know, didn't look very nice. Even if they were successful, well, the big guys would eat their lunch, you know, the classic incumbents. But what Tesla did was invert that and said, let's make really sexy vehicles and people will want to drive them. Oh, and by the way, if we really push the bounds here, we can get 300 miles of range, which is the same as an average tank of petrol. But it took a very brave individual, and this was also someone, remember, who made a lot of money through PayPal, was then putting his own capital at risk, you know, whereas the bulk of us would have been off sailing yachts and drinking cocktails. He put it into not just one company, but several companies, obviously, with SpaceX. So there is something about people like that and entrepreneurs like that that is special, I think. It comes with wrinkles. He has these amazing attributes, but they come with the cost. I think he tweeted so much, he bought Twitter. It was that (laughs) kind of classic, you know, sort of razor blades, brawn. I like the product so much, I bought the company. So yeah, it's looking for those people who do see the world differently, I think. And probably have the operational teams around them to execute. Correct. Yeah, so sticking with Tesla, they were making probably about 25,000 vehicles 10 years ago. This year, they'll make about 2 million. When we were first investing, we used BMW as a sort of benchmark of where might a luxury brand get to, and it was selling about 2.2 million vehicles, I recall. So operationally, it's scaled magnificently, actually, and that's no mean feat. They've had troubles along the way, you know, the, the tents in California and the, the moves into China and Germany, but actually now they can produce at that quantity. So you have to have the idea, but you also have to be able to deliver on it and operationally, as you say, hit those targets. And that creates that virtuous cogwheel of cash flows and profitability, which can then fund the growth. So shortly after you joined Asian financial crisis, you've been through a lot of volatility with financial markets, the dot-com crash, the great financial crisis later. And what have you learned going through these crises, particularly in relation to going through the pandemic and coming out of that as an investor? I think by my reckoning, there's about 10 crises in a 25-year career. So averaging one every two and a half years... As you said, you could add in the European sovereign debt. There's things in Dubai. Yeah, the, the market's always throwing these things at you. I think there's a couple of things that you learn. The first is you cannot control the share prices during a, a can't at any time, but especially during a crisis. So in 2008, the baby and the bathwater were being thrown out. Everything was being sold. Quite often, it was equities actually that were taking the brunt of it because they were liquid, people could get money out to fund margin calls elsewhere. All I can do at a time like that and the team can do is focus on the operational performance to really say, okay, is this company delivering what they said? So my third and final child was born in November 2008 and I remember coming back into the office, you know, staggering two weeks parental leave as we had then and you're back in 
and noticing that Apple <laughs> Apple share price was down near $100. And I had in my head, it was sort of $200 and sort of turned to Tom, who's working with at the time. Is it had a stock split? What's no, no, just sold off, you know, just one of these markets. That was October, November 2008. The market was falling eight, nine percent. So it wasn't particularly unusual. But this was a time where the iPhone had been launched in 2007. It was firing on all cylinders. It was obvious by then that Apple was completely transforming the mobile telephony market at its usual high margins. And so it was one of those, Warren Buffett would describe the pitch you want to swing at, one of those moments where the market was completely disconnected from the fundamentals of the business. And I think keeping that in mind has been a real lesson. The second is almost an antithesis to the first, that there are times where the macro does invade the micro. There will be moments, such as in the inflation crisis, the cost of living, where some companies' business models are just hugely disrupted. So we have to retain a humility. I think the secret to investing is to hold your ideas passionately but lightly, because firstly, things might change in terms of the competitive environment, but also that external environment. So in the last year and a half, there's definitely companies where we underestimated the impact of inflation or higher interest rates on, you know, coming back to my, my previous comments on the financials of the business, the balance sheet, you know, those companies which couldn't fund their own growth. So I think it's a combination of really digging into the operational, but remembering that sometimes these exogenous circumstances can change the company's outlook and its prospects. I was interested in an internal research note that you wrote recently where you mentioned that you'd learnt more probably during the period of the pandemic over the last three or four years than in your previous 20 years plus. Why is that? (laughs) Yes, there might be recency bias in writing that, but it just feels to me, first of all, we've had a lesson in black swans, like many others. I've read the Taleb book and, and one thinks that you think in these terms, but this pandemic was, it will be studied for multiple decades to come in terms of something that really wasn't on anyone's radar in terms of the whole global economy adjusting like that and and having a global airborne disease which could spread so rapidly. So that idea of certainty and the unexpected. I think the second thing is we've all been brought up in an era of relatively free trade, international movement, you know, the, the powers of government. In Scotland, we were, what was it, five miles, you could sort of exercise one hour a day. The idea that governments could even do that, even now, seems quite shocking thinking back from 2023. I'm not getting political at all, but there's just that ability to close borders. So I think that was a sort of reminder. And I think there are sort of ongoing tensions in the chip market. There's flashpoints. My PhD, as you referenced at the start, was in nationalism. And I think there are strong pockets of nationalism, which we need to keep an eye on and be cognizant of. But more than anything, it was the ability of companies, entrepreneurs to navigate through things. So I'm a huge believer in entrepreneurship as the solution. And I still don't think we've properly appreciated how extraordinary the creation of the vaccine was. If you think about that, pre-COVID, a vaccine typically took about 10 years to develop. Yet we went from lab to shots into people's arms in nine to 12 months. It wasn't just the companies, the innovation there was tremendous, but the way that it was regulated, the logistics of production and getting it in. So 
to allow us to get back to a functioning global economy with all the attendant problems and the supply chains, etc. But we are now largely open, China being the last major economy to do that. And that gives me great sucker looking forward. It's a reminder of that spirit of entrepreneurship can triumph, actually. So when I look at the environmental crisis or the healthcare challenges, yes, governments have a role to play. But to me, it will be entrepreneurs who we don't know yet who will help solve these sort of problems. And quite a, a discombobulating experience, really, for both growth investors and the companies that we invest in, in the sense that a lot of that disruption was pulled forward quite sharply by the pandemic, which potentially created quite a difficult environment for investors. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a sort of basket of stocks known as the sort of pandemic darlings, which were effectively the stay at home stocks, you know, so whether it was Peloton and fitness or Netflix, you know, the, the things which which benefited. You're always as an investor trying to get what's underlying growth here, what's the core growth, what's sustainable growth. It's a multitude of factors which go into that, but it became difficult during the pandemic. You definitely knew some had been pulled forward, but the degree to which that might transform society and stick or the degree to which it might fall back. And I think we made a couple of mistakes in that. So something like a Peloton, which did the right thing. I think the pandemic was almost the worst thing that happened to that company, bizarrely, because it was growing very nicely before it. Then all the gyms shut, people were shut in their house, they were desperate to exercise. They had to scale up to meet demand. Had I been in the boardroom, I think I would have taken the same decision. But that then led them to big supply chain issues as society reopened. People actually, there was a community aspect to gym which people liked. And disappointingly for me, what it's led to is the company has really drawn in its horns because the real excitement for me in Peloton was it was only in five or six countries when we were first buying it. And we've seen this playbook many times where companies with that sort of brand can go into 60, 80, 100 countries and repeat what they have done. And that gets me really excited. But in the case of Peloton, there was too much and there was some mismanagement as well, etc. So it was hard for the some of the companies, hard for, for investors as well. Some have adjusted much better. So I would cite something like Netflix, which had a big fall in the share price, but is now back to growing, has the strongest balance sheet in its industry by a mile, but is also doing interesting things in terms of different revenue streams. So it's closing that loophole where people with multiple logins in different locations can be on the same family account. So I've son at university and I pay an extra £5 a month for, and that to me seems quite fair, you know, in terms of you, know, you shouldn't be watching that much Netflix at university, <laughs> but uh, that's the, all, all students do that now. They're also introducing an advertising model, etc. So there's a key point that you want companies which are adaptable as well. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of willingness to, okay, well, the circumstances have changed, so we change our mind and can adapt their business model. What company are you excited about at the moment? I think it's companies that are marrying technology and healthcare get me really excited. I think one of the lasting effects of the pandemic is this idea, you know, throughout my career, personalised medicine has been talked about. It's one of those terms that's often bandied around, but I feel as if we're getting closer and we're on the cusp. So there's a couple, I really like Dexcom, which does the glucose monitors. It's a little, very clever technology, fits under the wrist, a tiny chip, and it effectively gives a reading every five minutes for people with diabetes. So there's a big market in type 1 diabetes, obviously. 
And interesting, I was reading the other day that sadly, the instance of type 1 diabetes is rising in children post-COVID, and it's a genetic mutation that scientists have noticed. They're not quite sure where that's coming from. But you've also got the societal or the lifestyle type 2 diabetes, which I think is a well-worn story that many societies are struggling with that. This company, it's run by people who themselves have been close, either diabetic themselves or have had relatives. It saves lives. It will tell you when people are going high or low in their glucose range. It's very focused. It's faced competition from startups and from Google, but it's got the best product on the market. And I think that idea of getting data from the body to your phone is a really interesting one in terms of that bridging of that sort of personalization gap. I also think we're on the less than 1% of the global population have had their genes sequenced. We're on the cusp of just a huge explosion in the use of genetic sequencing. Ultimately, the holy grail there is tackling oncology. It's one in two of us will get cancer during our lifetime. It is, by its very nature, a disease of genetic mutation. So actually sequencing genes and bringing down the cost of that and, and being able to form treatments around that. So I think that combination of technology and healthcare feels ripe for me in terms of the timing. And it has taken a while. It's needed to advance in technology and imaging and all sorts. I think that's very exciting. And we often ask our guests on the programme about what book they're reading. Mark, what are you reading at the moment? It's 1599, which is by James Shapiro and won the winner of winners event for the the Bailey Gifford book prize. I think it's just wonderful. So it's a year in the life of William Shakespeare, 1599 being the year when he wrote some of his greatest plays, Julius Caesar, Hamlet, etc. But it's incredibly detailed. There, There aren't clearly that many records from that time, but he's done a wonderful job of recreating what it was like to live in Elizabethan London and the challenges and the economics. You had the, the Spanish Armada. There was wars in Ireland as there was. There was the potential sort of Scottish king coming to replace the Baron Elizabeth. And it, it just, when you read it, you feel as if you're in the streets around the Globe Theatre in London. And I just think it's a tour de force. So I would highly recommend it. Thanks for the recommendation. And we'll put all that in our show notes so listeners can find out more details about the book. Thanks very much for joining us on Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, Mark. Pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the conversation, check out our article, The Changing Face of Growth, which we've linked to in the show notes. You can also hear from some of our other fund managers at baileygifford.com forward slash podcasts and please subscribe for spotify apple podcasts and other platforms we'd love it if you left us a review to help spread the word but for now thanks for investing your time in the podcast and i look forward to joining you again in the next episode of short briefings on long-term thinking 